Timothy chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to start a new series tonight. And I'm excited about this because um, the devil's job is to keep you confused, and God's job is to provide clarity. And whether that's in the area of uh, sexuality, gender, as we're seeing going on today, or whether it's in the area of doctrine and biblical truth, let me just say this, it's all interwoven into the same fabric. And the same fabric is this, who or what is the final authority in your life? Um, And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do a study on the Bible. Uh, Kind of a novel concept because you do studies about uh, words and doctrines and, and passages and books in the Bible. But why do we believe the Bible? How, can, how do we know we can trust it? Where does it come from? Uh, what does the word Bible even mean? We're going to go into all that stuff in this series. And I'm excited to be able to go on this journey with you guys. And I got to tell you, um, I, I believe today more than ever, uh, the issue is who or what is the final authority in your life. First uh, Timothy chapter 6. And we'll look at two words to start this whole thing off that uh, are used today to blind the minds of even born-again believers. Um, uh, There is nothing wrong with science. As a matter of fact, the book of Daniel, the the word science shows up twice in your Bible. Once in the book of Daniel where it talks about the children of Israel, um, they had uh, a knowledge of science, uh, and and, and they had a a, a depth of understanding to them that the Gentiles around them did not. So it shows up in Daniel. It also shows up here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look, if you would, at verse number 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of what? Science. Science. Look at the rest of this. Falsely so-called. In other words, there's two kinds of science. There's a real one and a fake one. All right. Now, uh, look, if you would, at Colossians chapter number 2. What we're going to learn uh, tonight, if you didn't already know this, at least maybe reinforce it for you, is there are also two kinds of wisdom. And uh, one is, is biblical, one is heavenly of the Lord. It, it comes and it's associated with the fear of God. And there's another kind of wisdom that the Bible calls earthly, sensual, and devilish. Uh, and uh, what, what happens when you try to mix Bible truth with worldly philosophy is you've got darkness. The lights get turned down. Everything goes dim. And what you're dealing with today in, in, with modern Christianity, for the most part, uh, is a lot of that. You're mixing philosophies of the world. I'll give you a for instance, and maybe some of you might even have a problem with this, and I don't mean to offend you, but, but the first thing that you think of when there's an emotional uh, anxiety or emotional uh, turmoil in your life, is it, I need to see a psychologist or I need to go to God? I'm not saying there's never a place to get some counsel. Don't misunderstand me. I'm asking you, what's your knee-jerk reaction and why? And what you're going to find out is that modern Christians today, they have replaced Bible preaching and Bible teaching with psychologists and doctors. You say, why? Because when when the Bible is no longer your authority, something has to be that authority. (laughs) Nature abhors a vacuum. And so when, when the Bible and God himself... Is not your authority. Here's a question. I know you're standing. We'll get to the verse and we'll pray and you'll go back down. We'll get through the rest of the study. But let me, let me ask you this. Uh, how are you going to know anything about God? How do you know God? His word. Here's the problem. There's 1,200 different versions. So how do I know which one is the right one? How do I understand? And, and what we're going to get into is this. 
God is a God of clarity and certainty. The devil's the one that wants to go, mm, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. When someone gets saved, what's the first thing we try to do when they get saved? I'll tell you this, I took Ibrahim, and I, just like I took uh, 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 Chandana, and the, like I took Ashvik and, and Ashika to 1 John 5.13. You know why? Because it says there, these things have been written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to guess or wonder or hope. You can know. How do I know? Because God's Word says it. How can I trust that book? You better figure it out. Because your salvation is resting on it. And so look at uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And, and I want to be very, very, very clear with you. One thing that I do not want to do, and I've had people recently ask. We've had people come to our church and they go, um, you know, I've, I, I know there's some kind of Bible issue thing in King James versus the other ones. And, and uh, I don't know where I fit in all that. Can I still come here? Can I still be a part of it? Absolutely, we want you here. That's different than someone that says, you know what, there's no way you can know any Bible, there's no way you can know anything 100%. There's no way you can have any certainty or assurance of any Bible being right. And I think what the Lord has done for us is He's shown us, and we're going to see this, that, that He is a God of absolute truth. Look at Colossians 2, look if you would at verse number 7. Colossians 2, verse 7, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the... It all goes back to this. It's, it's going to come back to it over and over and over. All right? Uh, look, if you would, at verse 7. As ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, beware, lest any man spoil you through what? And vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Uh, there are a lot of believers today that will lean on science falsely so-called. Or they'll lean on philosophy. And we're going to talk about the danger of doing that when it comes to what God's Word says. And what I want to present to you tonight is this. I don't want to present to you uh, a matter of thousands of Bible versions and looking at all the versions. And You know, we could do that. i got some versions in here. I can compare some Scripture. And we might do that later in the study. But I want to bring some clarity to this subject. I think the best way to do that is to try to make it as simple as possible. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to present to you this thought. There are not thousands of Bibles. There are two. And we're going to explore what I mean by that from the Word of God and bring some clarity to you, to your mind, so you can, you can have confidence in why you believe the Word of God. Okay? Let's go to the Lord tonight and ask God's blessing on the study. Brother Tim, if you'd ask the Lord's blessing on it. Amen. Amen. Let, let me ask you this, guys. Uh, how, how many gods are there? True gods. How many real faiths are there? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All right. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. The nature of God is to be very certain because God is absolute truth. So the question then becomes, how do we know God? And the only medium that God has given us to know him is his word. Then I go, okay, if that's the medium that God chose, this is not what I chose. I did not choose to get God's mind written in a book. I'm thankful that I have it in a book, but that wasn't my choice. That was God's choice. And so if that's God's choice and God wants to communicate with me through that, then I have to go back to the idea, is there a place where I can go with confidence to know my God? And if there's not, then you know what basically we're left with? We're left with humanism, where everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And you pick what is right and what is wrong for you. God gave us something to guide our lives. Now look, we're going to go through and, and define. Listen, if you want to know what salvation means, where do you go? This is not, it's not a trick question, I promise. All right. You, you want to know what salvation is, you go to the Bible. If you want to learn what uh, uh, the doctrine of the rapture, or you want to learn about the triune nature of God, or you want to know of any, any, any word in the Bible, you would go to the Bible to learn about that word that's found in the Bible. Make sense so far? All right. So if I want to learn what inspiration means, I'd go to the Bible. If I want to learn about the preservation of God's words, I'd go to the Bible and see what God says about that. Uh, if I want to learn about uh, authority and the idea of how many authorities I should have in my life, I'd go to the Bible about that. But here's kind of where it gets kind of weird. Uh, most Christians will go to the Bible to learn about marriage and children and faith and this and that. But then when it comes to the idea of these things, they go to other books, which makes absolutely no sense. If the Bible is, as we say, the greatest commentary on the Bible, does it not make sense to go to the Bible for these words? All right, so we'll do that, and we'll do that later. I'm not going to go through all these right now, all right? But, but even, even something as, as, in your mind, maybe as simple as what does the word Scripture mean, that's a loaded question, all right? Because uh, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration. All right, so we're going we're gonna to go through all these things later, but, but here's what I want to do. I want to make this as simple as I can and as practical for your life. Now, look, I took years of school where you learn in a manuscript, you go into manuscript evidence and you go to show like this manuscript comes from this place and here's the evidence for it and here's the papyrus fragment here and here's this thing and this is the Byzantine text and this is the, I'm going to try to as much as I can not to go into all of that. I could go into that, but let me just be honest with you. Most of you would be bored out of your mind. You would. And secondly, you'd leave going, great, we learned a lot of stuff. How do I apply that to my life? So what I want to do is take a subject that is quite deep and try to make it as simple as possible and make it as applicable as I can for your life. Uh, but let me start with this. Let's start with the idea of authority. All right, mom, yeah, let's say you give a certain thing. You tell your kids a certain uh, instruction. Dad doesn't know what it is. All right, does this ever happen? Do you guys ever, ever anybody ever been there? All right, and then dad walks in and goes, oh, yeah, you can do that. And the kids scamper off and they go, ha, ha, ha. And then mom throws down the gauntlet and goes, what are they doing? And who said you could do that? Right, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I had no idea. You know what happened? You got played by the kids. You know why? Because they learned if they can get the authorities to conflict, they can get what they want out of the situation. Make sense? So listen, if you can get authorities to conflict and the Bible is not your authority, then you become like your own God. Uh, the book of Judges is a great commentary on this. The Bible says, in that day there was no king in the land, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. In other words, if the Bible is not your authority, do whatever you want. <laughs> because God's not the authority. 
So make, listen, make it up as you go. If, if there is no absolute authority, do whatever you want. But can I say this? God is not the author of confusion. Right? God, God is not for that in your life. Uh, look, if you would, at James chapter number three with me. James chapter three. You know what the psalmist says? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not having an authority in your life causes chaos and confusion. And God gave you an authority to guide your life. That's why he says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The only, the only person that would want to get you off of that path, off the right path, and take the light out of your hand, let me just say this, it isn't God. It is not the Lord that would want you to be confused and to be in darkness. We're going to go through some references in, in just a moment about what the Bible says about darkness and about what the Bible says about light and how the Word of God is likened to light in your life. Why? To direct you so you know where you're going. Well, if I cannot trust these words, then how can I know where I'm going? Uh, look, if you would, at James chapter number 3. Look, if you would, at verse number 15. I'm sorry, go back, go back to verse uh, 13. Who's a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. In other words, if you are wise, it's going to be expressed through wise living and through the fear of God and doing what God said, obedience. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom cometh, uh, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Now watch the next verse. For where envying and strife is, there is what? So there's two kinds of wisdom. One kind of wisdom brings clarity and light into your life. The other kind of wisdom brings chaos and confusion and darkness to your life. Now look, before you got saved, I'm not trying to drudge up uh, bad memories for those of you that maybe got saved later in life. But let's, let's just be honest for just a, a second. Were there not places in, that you went to in your life where they were darker on purpose? All right, why was that? Why were those places darker on purpose? I'll tell you why. Because there's something in the human heart that says, I can do something. I can do what I want when it's dark. There's no one watching me. But the eyes of the Lord are in every place but the evil and the good. So what man does is he tries to bring darkness as much as he can. Why? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So God goes supernaturally. I'm going to break forth from heaven down into, into planet earth. I'm going to bring something from out in there in the universe down into your hands that puts light into your hands. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to take that light out of your hands. He wants to make it. You know what the, you know what the, the word of God is? Man, it's, it's, like a, it's like a floodlight in your life. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to replace that floodlight with a flashlight. But it's still a light. Yeah, but it's not the same kind. And it doesn't have the same power. Now, let me get this out of the way right now. You're not in a church that believes that unless you have a King James Bible, you can't be saved. That's foolishness. That's hogwash. You could get saved from an NIV, from reading an NIV. Because you know what? The gospel is so simple. You can get saved from reading a Christian comic book. I mean, seriously, that didn't even have the scriptures in it. And then someone could paraphrase the story of the gospel and go, I need to get saved and trust Christ as your savior. All right. But, but there's enough truth in that for someone to get saved. But let me ask you a question. After you're saved, what are you supposed to do? It's supposed to grow. And you're supposed to grow and understand that God has put a definite path in your life. And in order to find that path and stay on that path, you need as much light in your life 
as possible. Uh, you're, not, you're not too far from here. Uh, look at 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. The subject of light is rife throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, when, he's trying to, uh, when the Bible is trying to show us the contrast uh, between day and night, between uh, darkness and light. The Bible says we're not children of the night, but rather children of the day in reference to the rapture and getting left behind all that stuff. You see this theme over and over and over. Uh, Second Peter chapter 1, look if you would at verse number uh, 19. We have also a more sure what? Word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that you take heed, as unto a what? Light that shineth in a what place? Dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being within you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And someday he's going to come out and show through you for all eternity. All right, that, that's what that's talking about. But notice that it mentions the word of prophecy. And notice it talks about a light in a dark place. That's this world. This world's a dark place. God's intention for your life is for you to have light. Let me ask you this question. Uh, after the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, Genesis 1-2, what's the first thing God did? He made light. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose the first thing that He says, let there be light, is, is about bringing light out of darkness? Because whatever, now look, I don't, I don't want to get into Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and all that kind of stuff, but, but I'll just say this much. Whatever is in verse 2, God's not completely pleased with. So he goes, we need light here. Right. All right, so, so, so what you find in your Bible is this constant theme of God trying to bring light into your life. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a, look at some verses on, on darkness. I want to I get this theme kind of impressed into your mind. This is Wednesday night Bible what? Right. All right, so we're going to flip through some scripture tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4, and look if you would at verse uh, number 5. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 5. Oh, no, that's not it. No, yeah, that is it. Sorry, guys. Uh, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of what? You know what God does when he shows up? He turns the lights on. If God is actively involved in your life, you will have more clarity on what is right and what is wrong for your life. You will not have more ambiguity or uh, less certainty, if I can say it that way. You'll have more certainty and more confidence of what is right and what is wrong, the more of God that you get in your life. Well, how do you get more of God in your life? Outside of his words. You see, today's, uh, a lot of Christians today, they find God through experience and emotionalism rather than through the words of God. And so if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, you go, well, it's through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Okay, then that, that means this. That means the more of God's Word I get in my life, the more light there is and the less darkness there is in my life. Let me say this. It, when you get around people that are always wanting to be in dark rooms and be in, around dark music, and be, there's something that's not right there. I'm not saying they're not even saved. You can be a saved person and, be, and fall under that category. Because you get out of that book, your life can go in the wrong direction. But what I'm trying to show you is this. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that God is in direct opposition to darkness in your life. The devil is the one that wants to keep you in darkness. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look if you would at verse number 6. For God, who commanded the light, he didn't request, he commanded the light to shine out of darkness 
has shined in our hearts to give the light. You see this shining and light theme over and over and over? All right, to, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so, so in other words, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to me knowing God and more of God in my life, I must decrease, you must increase, that when that happens, there's more light and there's less darkness in my life. There's this simple concept so far, right? Does this make sense to everybody? All right, all right, look if you would at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, look if you would at verse number 11, or verse 10 rather, proving what is acceptable in the Lord and have no, what? Fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Listen, when you get saved and you get in the word of God, the lights come on and all of a sudden you start seeing stuff from your old life. You go, man, that was dirty. Man, that was wicked. Man, that was darkness. And you start flipping the light switches on. And here's the problem with that. People that don't want the lights on yet, they're going to get annoyed with you. Okay. But you know what that is? That's the effect of the word of God in your life. Uh, Look at Colossians chapter number one. Colossians chapter one. Colossians 1, look at what God brought us out of. Colossians 1, verse number 13. Who had delivered us from the power of what? And have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The, the contrast over and over and over and over is night versus day, light versus darkness. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talking about the end times, the second coming of the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look if you would at verse number 4. Now, by the way, if, you know, if you're familiar with this passage, chapter 4 talks about the rapture, and then chapter 5 switches gears and talks about the day of the Lord. Two separate events. One is the taking up of the church, and the other is Jesus Christ coming down to establish his kingdom. But look at uh, chapter 5, verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in what? You shouldn't be. You, should be. you shouldn't be in darkness. You should, listen, I, I was just on the, on the way in a church area, and I was showing me something about a, a preacher that we both know. And he was at a, a basketball NBA game, and there was a, uh, I think it was a Catholic priest, maybe an Orthodox priest, I don't know, some kind of priest, and talking to the man, very nice man, a very cordial conversation, not, not anything caustic or mean or nasty, but he, he said to the man, do you know Jesus Christ? He goes, yes, I do. He goes, well, are, do you know where you're going when you die? He goes, I, I hope so. He says, well, can't you know? He says, no one can know for sure, but I'm trying. You know what that is? That's darkness. And that's sad, man, to be dedicated to the ministry of the Word of God and not... You say, what is it? You don't got the right book. And you don't have the right doctrine and you don't have the right teaching. You say, well, what's going on? Darkness. Let me tell you right now, if I was going to convince other people to quit their meanness and quit their sin and start following God, I'd like to have some assurance that I know what I'm talking about. And if I didn't, guys, I'm telling you right now, if I didn't believe the words in this book... I would quit the ministry today. I already got something else going on in my life. It's not like this is the only way I can make a living. I've met some preachers that they fake their way through it and they don't believe any word in that book and they do it to sucker Christians out of their money. That's not where I'm at. I do this because I love it. And I'll tell you right now, guys, the reason I do this is because I believe what's here. Look at uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 5. You're all children of light and the children of the what? We are not of the night nor of what? And by the way, that's why you, you do well to stay away from places. Listen, there's just some places that you don't need to be at at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know? Uh, and so what, what I'm getting at is this. God constantly is bringing us into light, out of darkness. Look at one more place. 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. 
simple concept, and you go, well, preacher, this is great, but this has nothing to do with my question about different Bibles. Oh, just, just bear with me. We're going to get to all that. We're not going to answer all the questions tonight. I'm, I'm going to warn you. This is going to be several weeks, and we're just in the introduction right now. First Peter chapter number 2, and look, if you would, at verse number 9. I simply want to get across to you that the Lord is not for you being in darkness. First Peter 2, verse 9, but ye are chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you. Aren't you thankful he got us out of darkness? Who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. (laughs) All right, so God is constantly going, hey, let's get you out of darkness. Let's get you out of those. Listen, when I was lost, you know, I was was in the rags of my own self-righteousness, and when I got saved, he clothed me in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I was in darkness, and he brought me in the light. There's no reason why I should, if I'm, if I'm willing to trust God with the salvation of my soul, it all goes back to this. I believed the word that was given to me from the scriptures. And listen, go, go to Romans chapter 10, Romans 10. For your salvation to stand, it all goes back to you having faith in what God says. Uh, look at Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, verse number 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you glad for that, whosoever? I am. All right, now now look what it says here in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It shows us, it necessitates for us to to, to be sent out and to give the gospel to others. The people need preachers, they need someone to give them the gospel. All right, that's important, that's clear from, from the passage. But look at verse number 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah, that's Isaiah, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? All right, so the context of this is New Testament salvation. Can we agree on that? So the salvation of your soul rests on you hearing the word of God. And then for you to continue to grow and be grounded so that you're not tossed to and fro about with every wind of doctrine, goes back to whether or not you have a real authority that you can trust in your life. An authority that brings light and gets you out of darkness. Now, you may go, well, preacher, I don't get how this has to do with all the other Bible stuff, like all the other Bible versions. What is it? Well, let me just say it like this. There are two ways of looking at the Bible. You go, oh, no, there's a lot more. No, no, no. At the end of the day, there's only two. Here are the two ways. Nobody can really know. Just like when you talk to someone about salvation. Nobody can really know. You ever talk to someone that says that? Uh, yeah. I, no one can really know what's going to happen after you die. No one really knows. Well, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the talk of someone that doesn't believe what God said about it. But why would I believe what God says about it if I don't think I can trust that book? If that book's just written by men, I wouldn't trust it. Is this starting to make sense? Everything you believe about God rests on whether or not that's right. So at some point, you've got to come to grips with the idea that, that God is a God of absolutes, and he wants to reveal himself to us in, in an absolute form. And if so, there's two ways of looking at this. Now, I'm going to explain what these two cities represent, but, but the Alexandrian way of looking at the Bible is nobody can really know what the Bible says. And there's a little bit of the Bible here, 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 and it's kind of spread all out. And if you maybe learn the original languages, you might learn more of the Bible that way. And so people are generally, in a lot of churches, think this. If I don't know Greek and I don't know Hebrew, I can't really know the Bible. Can, can, I, can I get you to think about this for a moment? 
If you're a student of church history, was there not a church that kind of kept the Bible under lock and key and said, unless you learn Latin you, like we do, you can't learn it? That's not the right mindset. There's, someone, there's a spirit behind that, and I can tell you this is not the Holy Spirit. Then there's this way of thinking of it. The certain, I, I can, I can trust, God's words are certain. This is a different attitude than this. Nobody can really know. Look at, look at the book of Proverbs real quickly. Go to Proverbs chapter number 22. Proverbs chapter 22. The certainty of the words. It sounds like a great title for a good book. Proverbs chapter 22. Joe, don't you think so? All right. Proverbs chapter 22. Uh, look, if you would, at verse number 17. Proverbs 22, verse 17. Bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fit in thy lips, that thy trust may be in the who? Lord. In the Lord. Now, now, notice the connection from verse 19 to verse 21. Look at verse 20. Have not I, What? Wait, wait, wait. I thought I was going to trust the Lord. Yeah, but how do you trust Him? How do you know Him? Something's been written down about Him. Someone's writing something about God. Where is it? Look at verse 21. That I might make, know, make thee know the certainty of the words of what? See, those are two different ways of looking at this thing. Nobody can know for certain, right? Nobody can know for certain verses the certainty of the words. Here's another very stark contrast. You can just kind of interpret the Bible allegorically. Don't take it literally. Just, you know, kind of like, like everything in the Bible is kind of a parable. Uh, have you ever talked to someone that thinks that the, the story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus is a parable? Yeah. Can I say this? The Bible never calls it a parable. But if you take an allegorical approach to the Bible, meaning you don't read it literally and accept it literally, then that means it's open to interpretation. It's open to, let me put it this way, it's open to private interpretation. And the Bible says, you, you may have missed it, uh, the very next verse, 2 Peter 1.20, that the scriptures are of no private interpretation. All right, so there's two very, very different ways. This focuses, this way of thinking focuses on Bible doctrine. What does the Bible say so I can stand on it, so I can know what God says about, for example, salvation? What does God say about eternal security? What does God say about authority? What does God say about marriage? What does God say about relationships? All the things. What does God say? What is it that God says about these things? That's Bible doctrine. That's different than philosophy. Philosophies, well, we're kind of all sitting around trying to figure it out. And we're all kind of like, you know, uh, kind of just, just trying to find the, the essence of what truth is, it's out there somewhere. If we could just find it. If only God put it in a book somewhere. I mean, that's really the attitude, right? And so there are two very different outlooks on this thing. One is, God said it, therefore I believe it. And the other is, well, we've got to kind of figure out. By the way, philosophy means love of wisdom. And there's, again, we already saw it, there's two kinds of wisdom. And so when you get into philosophy and you put philosophy over doctrine, you're in trouble. Now, I'm going to explain in a moment why I've got two different places listed up here. But for now, just understand these represent two different attitudes and two different outlooks on the Bible, on the scriptures themselves. All right. Uh, and so you have to come to grips with it. Which, where do I line up? What, what side am I on? Do I, do, I, do I approach this with a Bible mentality of God, God gave his word on it, therefore I'm going to believe what God said, or there's really no way to certainly know what it was that God wanted us to know? 
And at the simplest, guys, without getting into manuscripts and without getting all the history, it, at the simplest form of, of all this debate and all this, this topic, it goes back to whether or not God gave us his words and he wants us to know them certainly or not. And so if, if you approach this, and listen, I, in my mind, there's no doubt about where I'm at, but I want to make sure that you're in the same place if I can help you out. But, but can I say this? In order to kind of understand these two ideas, these two sets of, of different outlooks, you kind of have to understand the source. And so, so look at uh, James chapter 3 with me real quickly. James chapter 3. There are some, I mean, I mean Christians, I don't mean lost people, professing Christians who tr- look at the Bible, some of them scholars, and theologians who look at the Bible and they scrutinize it and they criticize it just like they would any other book. And they'll say things like this. Well, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. But, but that's kind of du- dubious. We're not really sure if that's what God said. And therefore, we may even want to take it out. Well, why? That's not about these and nows. That's about doctrine. That's about your trinity. But, but if you approach the Bible from a humanistic aspect, which is simply this, it was just written by men, and we're just going to do the best we can to find the best thing that we can find, then that's kind of where that thing can go. Or you approach it with a standpoint of God gave his words, it's my job to find them, they're somewhere. Lord, where are they? I don't think God would break his promise to us to give us his words. And, and so as it relates to this, it's, it's a matter of saying, I'm either going to line up with the philosophy of humanism as it approaches, as it relates to the Bible, or the doctrine of the scriptures as God lays it out within his words. All right? Uh, look, if you would, uh, where, where did I tell you to go? James chapter 3. Look, if you would, at verse number uh, 11. James chapter 3, verse number 11. Uh, can, can, I, can I say this? When something is, uh, uh, okay, for example, in today's society, uh, you get a lot of things that are being pushed on our, on, our, on our youth and on the next generation, and someone has to put the brakes on and go, where's this coming from? And when you trace it back, uh, let me, I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable, and I'm sorry, but for those that are like, you know, pro-choice, can I give you a little bit of history? Do you know who, you know who was really pushing that? A woman named Margaret Sanger. You know what that woman believed in? She believed in eugenics. You know what she believed? If we can get rid of the minorities... And convince them to kill their children, and we could purify the human race. This is history. All right. Now, now, I don't like that, but these are historical facts. So, at certain points, you have to look at things that that are, are the way they are, and go, okay, where does this come from? So, the mentality of the Bible is God's word versus the Bible is just a book written by men, and you can critique it like any other book. Those are two different ways of looking at the scriptures. Where do they both those ideologies come from? All right, uh, uh, James 3, look at verse 11. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine figs, so can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. You know what he's saying? Go back to the source. In so many words, he's saying, look, you've got to get back to the source and figure out where, where's this coming from. Because it is absolutely not God's uh, plan for us to be in darkness. It's not God's uh, uh, desire for our lives for us to wonder what it was that God said. And so it's important to go, where do these ideologies come from? And you don't have to be a big Bible scholar. You can just go to the Bible and go, okay, what does the Bible say about these two places? And I'm going to explain why they're important. Basically, here's what it boils down to. 
every single Bible version that you have on the market today, every single one comes from here. They're Alexandrian manuscripts. I'm not going to go too much in, no, further into that. Uh, I'll give you the name of the two major uh, uh, codexes, Vaticanus. You can guess where that comes from. Sinaiticus, this was a, a, a transcript of manuscript that was found in a trash can in a monastery. And they were getting ready to burn it. And then some guy, this guy, Tischendorf, found it and basically said, no, this is, the, we've been, this is what we've been all been missing. No, it was in the trash can for a reason. And, and so basically, uh, what you have is every modern Bible on the market today comes from Alexandria, Egypt. If you study the history, there are two lines of manuscripts, and that's it. There's two Bibles. The other comes from a city called Antioch. They're called Antiochian. They're called Byzantine. Right? If you pick up books about the subject, you read about the majority text, things like that. And I don't want to get too deep in that. I'll just say this much. Again, two different cities. All right, well, what does the Bible say about these cities? What's connected with these cities? So let's look at what the Bible actually says about these two cities rather than just like go. I don't want you to leave and go, we believe the, the King James Bible because Pastor Agent says it's old fashioned, it's what Baptists do. That's not what I, I want you to understand. There's a reason for all this stuff. All right. Uh, look, look, if you would, at Acts chapter. This is Bible study. So you're gonna, if you're tired right now, stand up, stretch out. But we're going to keep going through some, some scripture. So get, get, just buckle up. Right. Acts chapter number six. Acts chapter number six. You say, Pastor, you got a lot of energy. My baby slept from 10 o'clock last night till 4 this morning. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I couldn't sleep after that. I was up, man. But I tell you what, that was the best six hours of sleep I've had in a long time. Acts chapter 6, uh, look if you would at verse number 5. And the saying, this is, you say, what's going on? This is where they picked out deacons. The first deacons, if you were here Sunday night, you learned a little bit about that. The first deacons are selected from a problem and conflict that arose in the church. Now, look at what, uh, what, what one of these deacons' names was and where he came from. Look at verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of? You know what a proselyte is? It's a Gentile that, that converted to Judaism, and then he ends up getting saved uh, uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But where's he from? Antioch, that's important. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter number 11. Acts chapter number 11. Acts chapter 11, look, if you would, at verse number uh, 19. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, that's where Saul had a part in stoning Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and where? Preaching the word to none but on the Jews only. Brother Kay, can you get the, the little map up for us? Uh, and so what you've got is you've got Jerusalem down here. If you study your, your New Testament, the book of Acts, uh, really this was the kind of the epicenter of where all the activities at. This is where the, the Feast of Pentecost happens. This is where the, the uh, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts chapter 2, where the, the Jews are there and the proselytes from other countries are there and they hear everyone speak in their own language, their own tongue. That's Jerusalem, all right? Uh, the, uh, 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 Ananias and Sapphira, Jerusalem. Uh, Peter, 
uh, breaking the chains from prison and walking back. That, Jerusalem, that was kind of where everything started. Jesus uh, uh, being crucified and, and buried and rising from the dead. Jerusalem, why? It's the city of the great king. And by the way, all of history is eventually going to go right back there. All right, but, but what, what ends up happening is this. The, uh, God's chosen nation, Israel, the leadership of that nation, persecuted some of the, many of their own people who are turning in faith to Christ. And so because of that persecution, many of the saints left there and they traveled by sea, some of them by land. And you know where they went? A lot of them went up north. It says as far as Antioch. Now, there's two Antiochs in your New Testament. One is called Antioch of Pisidia. The other one's Antioch of Syria, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And that city of Antioch sits on the Orontes River. It's, uh, again, you can look it up, modern-day Turkey today. But that becomes eventually the epicenter of New Testament Christianity. You know what ends up happening? God says, okay, you rejected my son, and my people don't want to hear it. Acts chapter 13, you count yourself unworthy of hearing the gospel. Okay, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Acts 13, that's Paul. So guess what God does? God says, okay, if you guys don't want it, I'll take it to whoever does want it. And so, so kind of things kind of move up north. Uh, look, if you would, at verse number uh, 21. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which is in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as where? Why is he doing that? Because he's hearing about the Gentiles getting saved up there. And as they're hearing about the Gentiles getting saved up there, the, the leaders at the church in Jerusalem are going, hey, we need to go check this out. Let's just see, see if that's legitimate. So they send Barnabas to go up there. And when Barnabas gets there, look if you would at verse number uh, 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Where were they added unto the Lord? The church in Antioch. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas uh, departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek who? And when he found him, where did he bring him? And you know what they did for a whole year? They assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. Now look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people and disciples were first called, or were called Christians first. Where? So, so far, you've got the first deacons, uh, one of them being associated with this city. You've got the, the label of Christians coming from this city. Look at Acts chapter number 13. Look at Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. Now, what I'm trying to show you is the, 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 the connection between this city and the text that eventually gives us the Bible that's in your hand right now versus another city that gives us all the other Bibles that are out there today. And we're going to see there's a big difference between those two cities. Would you say that New York and, uh, let's see here, oh, let's go with Fort Morgan, Colorado, are two very different cities? Would you say even politically and philosophically speaking, they're very, very different? Would you say that one leans left and one leans right? All right, so cities can represent values. Can we agree on that? All right, they call California the left coast for a reason, okay? So, so what I'm getting at is this. There are philosophies or ways of thinking that are attached to certain places. Um, listen, when you get to Puerto Rico, throw your watch away. Why? Eh. Eso no importa. It doesn't matter. Just for island life, right? I, that's a Joe, stop it right now. It's why he's 10 minutes late everywhere. I know what you're doing. <laughs> God help you. You need to come hit the altar when we're done. Uh, look at Acts chapter 13. We better move and get in trouble here. Look at verse number one. Now, there were in the church that was at what? 
certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's uh, who we know as Paul the Apostle, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the what? Work whereunto I have called them. You know what ends up happening? Look at verse 4. So they being sent forth by the what? The Holy Ghost in one verse, and in the other verse, it's the people in that church. You know what that tells me? God's Holy Spirit works the, uh, through, through, the, through the church. Well, where's this church at? Antioch. The first major missionary expedition for Paul and Barnabas, guess where they get sent from? Antioch. That tells you something about this city. I'll tell you something about the church that was found in that city. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 15. You may remember that there's a conflict in the early church, and the conflict is this. Do we have to keep the law in order to be saved? Now that I've placed my faith in Christ, do I have to observe the Sabbath? Do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to abstain from pork? And if I had to abstain from pork, I'd probably go to hell because I'm a Puerto Rican. Amen? I mean, like, that's part of our, that's just the diet, man. That's just part of it. But, but you understand what I'm getting at? These were the questions that they had in the early church Okay, now that we believe in Christ, must we also keep the law in order to express that we are saved, right? So, so this debate goes on. Look at Acts 15. Uh, there's a resolution of this debate as well. Acts chapter 15, look if you would at verse 22. And when they had preached the gospel of that city and had taught... I'm uh, sorry, that's the wrong, uh, wrong chapter. Uh, mm, then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to where? So let me just give you a little rundown of what happened. Brother, bring the map up one more time. Sorry. Uh, what's going on is they had this debate, and this is where they had it. The elders of the church in Jerusalem are talking about, what do, are the Gentiles saved by faith alone, or do they have to keep the law? Now you go, well, that's not a debate. That, that's simple. They don't have to keep the law. Guys, for 1,500 years, you had to keep the law. And then all of a sudden, they're like, no more. That'd be hard to get over. Some of you guys have been, you know, doing certain things for, you know, five years, ten years of your life, and you can't stop, and you have a hard time with it. Imagine a custom that goes back 1,500 years. And, and, so, and so they're debating, and they're going, what, is, what does God say about this? And when they get it resolved, guess where they go? Why that city? Why that city? I'll tell you why I believe that city, because that is where the Lord is moving, and the, the Spirit of God is, is, is showing that the Gentiles can be saved like everybody else in that city. God brings Saul and Paul, and, uh, Paul and Barnabas to that church in that city. That's where Paul is trained. That's where Paul is sent from that church back to Jerusalem with the love offering, only to come back to continue in that ministry in that church, so that eventually that church in Antioch can lay their hands on them and send them out. So you know why you have uh, Romans and, and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. You know why? Because it was a faithful church that helped Paul get started in his faith. Aren't you thankful for that local church? I am. We have this book right here because it was a faithful group of people that loved Paul when nobody else wanted him around. You know what I want to be? I want our church to be like the church in Antioch. The outcasts and the people nobody else wants around. We'll take you. We'll love you. We'll train you. We'll send you out to make a difference for Jesus Christ in this world. I'd like that. Now, 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 what I'm getting at is this. This is the pattern over and over and over. Look at uh, Acts 15. Look at verse number uh, 23. Verse 23. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. Where did the letters go to? The apostles and elders and brethren and send uh, greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in where? 
Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and so uh, on and so forth. Uh, look at verse number 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to where? Now, th there's a reason why the city keeps getting mentioned. Because it is the central focal point after basically what you have in the book of Acts is this. And I, I, you've probably heard this before if you've been around here any amount of time or under any good Bible teaching. All right, you know what you have with the Gospels? You have a transition going from the Old Testament to New Testament. You know what you have in the book of Acts? You have a transition going from Israel to the church. All right, so you know what happens? It goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. And for the most part, for the rest of the book of Acts, the epicenter of Christianity is no longer Jerusalem, now it's Antioch. So does it not make sense that the people that had sound doctrine, listen to me, think about this. One of the cities that's mentioned in clearing up this, this problem of, of confusion about how you have to be saved and are the Gentiles saved the same way is Antioch. Isn't it interesting that the city is connected with the clearing of doubt of doctrine is Antioch. Now, I'm going to show you why that matters in a little bit when we contrast Alexandria. And I know we're running out of time. So let me just do this. Uh, go to Acts chapter 18 real quickly. One last reference to Antioch. And then we'll jump on the other side of this thing. Look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And look, if you would, at verse number... Uh, 21, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to where? So over and over and over and over. This is like Paul sending church. He goes back there a number of times to report to his church. This becomes the center of Bible-believing Christianity in the early church. Now contrast that with Egypt. You know what Egypt is? Egypt is a type of the world. Right. It's a picture of the world. God doesn't, listen, God allows his children to go there for a period of time, but then he always calls them out. He never wants them staying in Egypt. Matter of fact, over in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus Christ, uh, as a baby, uh, uh, his parents flee from Israel and they go down into Egypt. Remember that? And then when he comes out, you know what reference they, they quote? They quote from an Old Testament passage where it says, out of Egypt have I called my son. All right, let me ask you a question. Where did Abraham get Hagar? Remember what happened with that whole story? You got a problem. You got Ishmael. And you still have a problem with Ishmael to this day. Where did that come from? Egypt. All right. Uh, what happens in Egypt? Well, God's people go into slavery. Egypt's a picture of bondage. All right. You know what happens with Joseph's bones? Joseph says, don't leave my bones here. Take him out. It's a great picture of the fact that someday uh, you're going to get a new body and you won't stay behind. Amen. It's a picture of that, but, but the, the historical reference is this. Don't leave me here. I don't belong here. I don't fit here. All right? So, so think about what Egypt is connected with. Uh, how about the mixed multitude that, that, that goes lusting? Look at Numbers chapter uh, 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter uh, 11. I almost said Numbers chapter number 11, but that just sounded weird. Numbers 11, uh, look if you would at verse number 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us what? And then look what happens in verse number 5. All of a sudden they're remembering Egypt in a different mindset. Where did that mixed multitude come from? Egypt. Thank you. <laughs> they came from Egypt. 
All right. And so what you have is this. You have you have a situation where God is bringing people out of Egypt, his own people, and the people that come with them are Egyptians and their mindset's different. They don't know the one true God like Israel does. And so you know what they do as soon as there's trouble? It's not like it was back home. You know what that shows you? You can't go that far with people in the world. You got to be able to break fellowship. You can minister to them, but you can't have fellowship with them. Well, where do they come from? Egypt. You know, Pharaoh is one of the greatest pictures of the Antichrist. Let me show you another one. Uh, Isn't Jesus Christ called the good shepherd? I'm the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. Let me show you something else. Look at Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to lay this thing down and kind of wrap this up. So we're getting to the end here. Genesis chapter 46. There are two different outlooks on the Bible. One is an Antiochian outlook, which is God gave his words and he preserved them for me. It's my job to find them and believe them. Let's make it simple. Okay, uh, the other mindset is more of an Alexandrian mindset, which mixes uh, a Christian thought with philosophy of the world, which leads to humanism, which is basically I'm the final authority that decides what, in fact, is right and wrong. I end up playing God instead of allowing God to be God and give his words. And I believe it. All right. So, so look, if you would, at Genesis 46, uh, your your savior is called the good shepherd, is he not? All right, so in the Old Testament, uh, God uh, oftentimes deals with people that are shepherds, and it's, a, it's kind of a picture of who's going to come, his son Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Genesis 46, verse number uh, 34. I'm sorry, go to verse 33. And it shall come to pass, when Pharaoh shall call you, this is Joseph giving his brothers uh, some instruction about how to handle Pharaoh. When Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, what is your occupation? That ye shall say, thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen for every what? Is a what? Unto who? You know why the world doesn't like Jesus Christ? Because he's an abomination to them. Here's a sinless man, someone that never did anything wrong, said anything wrong, never looked at a woman the wrong way, and the world, the spirit of the world can't stand Jesus Christ. It makes no sense. It doesn't make sense why the Egyptians would hate, would hate shepherds, but they do. What I'm trying to show you is that there's something kind of wrong with Egypt, okay? That's the idea. God always, he allows his people to go there, but he always brings them out. Egypt operates by sight versus by faith. I'll give you the reference. I can't go there right now. Hebrews 11, verse 29, but come with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I promise we got three references left and we'll close this out and go home. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Look, if you would, at verse number 24. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at where? An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. You go, oh, well, that's good, right? Yeah, it is, but hold on. Came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the what? Baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more what? So here's this guy from Alexander. He's a good man. I'm not taking anything away from his character. The last thing that he knows is the baptism of John. That's the last message he heard. So you know what they had to do? They had to take him and straighten him out and go, hey, you've missed some stuff along the way. Let us catch you up. Making sense yet? 
Look at chapter 19. Look what happens. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said to them, Have you received the what? Since you believe. And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said to them, Under what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. You know what Alexander is a picture of? Not getting advanced revelation from God. Being stuck somewhere and not getting all the truth that God wants for you. There's nothing wrong with Apollos. He's a good man. And the, uh, by, by the knowledge that he had, he was doing everything right. I'm not knocking the Apollos. But I do want you to see the connection to the city of Alexandria. And now here's a guy that comes from Alexandria, and he's kind of still in the dark on what's going on doctrinally. Someone has to bring him up to speed that's not from there. Now, now, if you think I'm pulling straws, kind of pulling a little, a little too hard here, look at Acts 27. Do you remember the ship that Paul gets in that goes shipwrecked? Anybody know where it's from? I'll give you one guess. And if you guess Alexander, ding, 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 you got it right. And so let me ask you a question. Paul's not the fourth member of the Trinity, right? So Paul was human. So it's possible that Paul kind of pushed for something that the Lord didn't want for him, and he's going to die sooner than maybe what God planned? No. You, you, no I, I know some of that. How dare you talk with the Apostle Paul? He's human, guys. He's a good man, but he's human. And even you can, you can see this in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit forbade him to go, and he goes, I'm going anyways. Okay, so if the Holy Spirit forbids you to go, and you do it, what do we call that? <laughs> no one wants to say it, because like, it's Paul! How dare you? Well, he, I just, I'm, I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul, and God uh, 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 used him to give us the scriptures that we have in the New Testament. I'm thankful for that, but, but he's human. And, and so what happens is Paul gets kind of ahead of the Lord, and so what happens? He gets put on a ship. Where is it from? And what happens to it? You know the best part about the whole story? He was even better than that. After that ship gets shipwrecked, in the next chapter, they put him on another ship from the same place. Talk about not learning the lesson, Right? Uh, ever been there as a Christian? All right. Now, now here, here's what I'm trying to get you to, to understand. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Th- there's something off. There's something God's trying to show us about Egypt, and there's something God's trying to show us about Alexandria. And if you study historically what Alexandria became, it became the epicenter of the mixing of philosophy with Bible. And let me tell you something. That's like oil and water. It doesn't go together. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 11. Look, if you would, Revelation chapter 11. You say, what's going on here? Well, this is the, during the Great Tribulation. Uh, pay no attention to the screams from below. They're having fun. Not a reference to the afterlife. I'm talking about the kids down there. All right? For those watching online, we have kids downstairs right now. At Revelation chapter 11, uh, look, if you would, at uh, verse number 4. These are the two olive trees. Who are these guys? Moses and Elijah. All right, there's no question if you study your Bible who these people are. All right, these are two olive trees and the two candlesticks stand before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth like Elijah called fire down and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not, Elijah, in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn their blood, Moses, Exodus, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. You know what happens? Look at verse number uh, 7. Uh, there's a beast that comes up and kills Moses and Elijah. And their bodies lie in the streets of, look at verse 8, shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and what? 
where our Lord was crucified. Bring it up one more time, brother. You know that's a reference of in, in, in prophecy? Literally, Jerusalem. And at the time of the Lord's coming back, it's likened to two cities, two places, Sodom and Egypt. You know what comes out of Egypt? False idols. You know what comes out of Sodom? All right, so, so, so those are the references. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that's a positive thing or a negative thing? All through your Bible, the Lord's saying, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. And, and so as a Bible-living Christian, you have to go, okay, if every modern Bible comes from here, and I, and I learned through studying some history, I'm not going to go too much more into it than I, what I'm going into tonight, that what happened here was a mixing of worldly philosophy with the scriptures, and the outcome was people basically changing the words of God, and that is the fruit that eventually is born into what we call modern Bible versions. Maybe that should tell us there's a problem. And then I compare it to this city, which is clear in the book of Acts, what that, what that city lines up with. And do you realize that's where we get the majority text, which is where your King James Bible comes from? Now, I, I don't want to go much deeper than that on the manuscript side, especially not tonight. We're done. But, guys, I want you to understand, you have two Bibles on this planet. And really what those two Bibles are is a tale of two cities. Not the Charles Dickens book. But, I mean, the, it's, it's Antioch and Alexandria. This is the beginning. I have not answered all your questions tonight. not going to answer all your questions tonight, but I want to just lay the foundation and tell you, let's make it real simple. Let's not make it about everything real complicated out there. Let's just go back to what the Bible says about these two places where the, all the manuscripts that we have available today, where they come from, that give us on this side the King James Bible and on this side every other Bible that is what is called extant or available today. So you know what, I'll I'll leave you with this practical thought. Here's a practical thought. Don't go to the world for truth. Out of Egypt have I called my son. God has something better for us. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for the night. Lord, a lot of digging, a lot of scripture flipping, a lot of, uh, Lord, maybe uh, uh, study of history. Lord, a little bit of a different kind of Bible study than maybe what some are used to, but I pray that you'd use it. Lord, I pray as we go through this series, Lord, more than anything else, Lord, my desire, Lord, is for faith in your words to grow and to abound by your people. Lord, this is not about beating people over the head with how right we are or anything like that. Lord, we don't want pride to be a part of this at all. Lord, that's not your spirit, and I know better than that. But Lord, I do ask that you would humbly, uh, Lord, uh, teach us, enlighten us, Lord, illuminate us. Lord, that's what you promised to do with your words. And Lord, every single believer in here tonight, Lord, they got a, a, a very distinct path that you want them on for their lives. But we know where the path ends. Lord, it's between here and there that we get messed up. And Lord, I pray that they would grab a hold of these words and let it be a lamp under their feet and a light in their path. Lord, we love you. We ask your blessing, Lord, not just on what we learn tonight, but what we will learn over the next several weeks in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's take a break there.